Matthew chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief, scribe, chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, and indeed may he bless it to our hearing this evening, this morning. We come to a text this morning that of course is quite familiar to us. In fact, it's not only familiar to us, it is something that's well known throughout the Western Hemisphere by those who hate Christianity. This, of course, is a scene that many, many know, a scene that especially in the past several weeks was on the minds of many. But beloved, when we come to this text, when we come to this text, we are coming to a text that is setting before us the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a text that communicates to us real history. These are events that actually took place in real time. Um, but what's significant about this text is that at every point, like all that we've seen so far in the Gospels, is that as we are given this history, we are given this history for a particular end. It's not just that we might meditate on the contours of this timeline. Not just that we may have some understanding of what happened in the past. But the way in which this history is given to us is to derive, is to derive us rather to the Jesus Christ at every point. At every point. And so as the Western Hemisphere primarily reflects on this time, they think primarily about a quaint, highly romanticized story. And they think they know it. They think they know it because they can tell you the sequence of events that we have in our text this morning. Beloved, we have found time and time again, we don't know this history aright unless it drives us to the Christ whom it presents. And so that's the emphasis that we take this morning as we come to this very, very familiar text of Scripture. It is a text that is, at its construction, at its most fundamental level, a text that drives us to the living, to the living, to the present Christ. Now, as we look at Matthew 2, you may wonder, why are we in this text now? 
Uh, you know, of course, that we are working through the life of, of the life of Christ chronologically, as the gospel writers present them, present this to us. And as you look at the end of the text that we took up last week in Luke two, you have that you have the gospel writer telling us that as they leave the temple, forty-one days after the birth of Christ, they go to Nazareth. But as you come to our text this morning in Matthew two, uh, we are taken back to Bethlehem. And the question, of course, is how do we reconcile these two texts? And uh, historians, theologians, all kinds of writers have, have written much about how we fit Luke 2 with Matthew 2. And I would say to you this, this morning that there are many plausible um, options. We could see, for, for instance, that Luke's gospel is presenting to us really a summarized form. That in some short time, uh, after the wise men come... After Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go to Egypt and return, they go back to Nazareth. Luke, of course, will not give us any record about the descent into Egypt or their return to Nazareth, where Matthew's gospel does. So Luke's gospel is more compressed. Matthew's is more elongated at this point. Others would say that perhaps for a time, um, the, both Joseph, Mary, and Christ lodged in Bethlehem or that for some reason they came back to Bethlehem after they went back to Nazareth. And the point is that all of those options are plausible, uh, but I'd remind you that none of those options are given to us in the scriptures. Um, The inspired writers give to us what we need to know. There's no contradiction we know between Matthew and Luke. They can be harmonized. But the point that I would stress to you this morning, as we look at this text, is that here we have a record a record that palpably takes place after the temple, after the temple counts somehow, but a record that very much fits in with the emphasis that Matthew has already given to us. Um, Even if the Lord has not satisfied all of our curiosities with regard to the timeline, Matthew 2 very much fits with the primary theme that we saw when we were in Matthew 1. Luke will emphasize to us the humanity of Christ, where here in Luke 2, very pointedly, the majesty of Christ is front and center. And so I'll I'll leave my comments about harmonization at that and come really to the text itself this morning. I want you to notice that in chapter 1 we saw, when we were there months ago, that the gospel writer gives to us the identity of Christ. He is indeed that promised son of David. And he is that son of David that belongs legally, rightfully to the throne of David. There is no other, you remember, as Joseph adopts Christ into his family line, there is no other contender to the throne that had a rightful claim upon it. And so, in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we are given the identity of Christ. When we come to the second chapter, what we have here really is now the exhibition, the presentation of this Christ. And also, as we'll see, the preservation of this Christ as opposed to the malice of the world. And so I want you to notice, beloved, as we look at this text, and we see here Christ presented, see how Christ comes to us. Take the very first two verses, those who are seeking him. Note the inquiry, where is the king of the Jews? And what's striking about this, as we'll see, is not just those who are asking, but whom they ask. They ask this of Herod. 
The Edomite, who was a pretended king of the Jews. And, and the question obviously has, under, under, underneath it at least, the idea that they do not at all acknowledge his kingship. They don't acknowledge the kingship of Herod in the least. Say what Romans may. Herod is not the king of the Jews. That's a striking thing. They repudiate Herod at the beginning. And then they say here, as the gospel writer presents it, they have seen his star. It's in the genitive, meaning they see this as the star of the Messiah. And then as you look at the text, they describe their purpose. They are, they are come to worship him. They're not merely there out of, for curiosity's sake. They are there that they may worship. In verses 3 through 8, then, we are given the answer. Herod gathers then, in response to all of this, all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He demanded of them where Christ should be born. What's striking is, Herod, an Edomite, has made the connection. When the wise men go and they ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? He knows that they're referring to Christ, to the Messiah. Even an Edomite can make that connection. And then you'll notice here, that as he looks at this situation before him, he goes to those who know the scriptures. He calls the chief priests and the scribes together. And then we're given, of course, the citation from Matthew 5 in the second verse. In response to this answer, we're told, Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. The words in the Greek are very simple. The idea was he was trying to ascertain precisely when the star appeared. He wants to know exactly when the wise men are notified by the star that the Messiah had been born. And there is an emphasis in the text, in the original. There is a precision that Herod is requiring. Uh, he is very much intent to know as detailed as he may when this star first appeared. And then, of course, you have that statement. Go and search diligently. Same word, accurately or precisely, for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Of course, you know this is dissembling. You know this is deception. Uh, We know this, of course, as we look at the the latter portions of chapter 2 in Matthew's gospel. But it's something that Herod says regardless. And then you have in verses 9 and 10, the end of our text, the expedition. The star, which they saw in the east, were told, went before them. And when they saw the star later on, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They go back through this on this expedition once the star appears. And the, the implication, of course, is then that the star was not always present. Uh, there was a time whenever it was visible, which set them on this quest. Then it vanishes, brings them to Herod, to the scribes, to the chief priests. And then after their conference in Jerusalem, Then the star reappears. And as it reappears, note what it says. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, that's the text. A very, very basic overview of what's in front of us this morning. And as we look at this text, there are three kinds of folks, I suppose, that look at this text and have certain questions. Right? The exegetes, those commentators in Scripture, will will spend many pages, spill much ink on the question, how do we see the use of Micah 5.2 in this text? Uh, what do we do with um, the use of the prophet by the chief priests and the scribes here? The other ones, of course, are the astronomers. 
Uh, they want to know about the star. And so they spend a lot of time about whether or not this was a meteor or a comet, uh, some kind of planetary alignment. Um, and so they, they spend just as much time and energy answering that question. And then historians, of course, ask the question, how on earth did these magi know? How did these wise men know uh, to look for a star? How were they notified that there was a king of the Jews to come? And, and of course, all of those questions, uh, friend, are very common, but none of them are in the text. None of them. And while we can certainly allow modest inquiry in the scriptures, we do, we do need to approach these, these passages humbly. I want you to notice in the text, there are no names of these wise men given. We're not even told the country from which they come. And really, we're not even told how these magi come to know what they know. The inspired historian has left all of those things purely unanswered. Also, you'll notice here, as you look at this text, uh, that as you look even at Micah 5.2, you don't have what you have in Matthew 1, where when the, prophet, when the, the apostle cites a prophet there, he adds to it that these things were fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet. Micah 5.2 comes to us from the lips of the scribes and from the chief priests. Now, all of those things, and we could go on from there, all of those things tell us pointedly that as the inspired historian writes, as the Spirit of God moves infallibly to provide for us this account, none of those questions are primary. Not one. We are not really supposed to be a people who are focused on those aspects of the text. And that may deflate some as we look at this. As we look at this passage, I think most hope to have some kind of answer given to these questions. But simply, put directly, the word of God is not interested in giving us those answers. So what is it that the text is really saying? If it's not about the star, if it's not really even about the magi, the wise men themselves, what is this text presenting to us? Positively, friend, there is something in the text that is certainly stressed. It's what you have in verse 2 and in verse 10. The word of God reads, When Herod heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And then take the 10th verse. When they saw the star, that star that would show them Christ, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I grant, friend, that there may be more in this text, but there is at least this. The gospel writer very pointedly is showing us a contrast. There are those, these Gentiles who are seeking Christ, and when he comes to Christ's people, they are the only ones who rejoice at the thing that will point them to Christ. While the church, the visible church in that time, and the Edomite on the throne, they tremble. It's a striking contrast, isn't it? It's a striking contrast that here you have... An Really, a paradox that's almost unexpected. Here you have Gentiles without the light of God's word rejoicing at the thought of Christ. And here are those who knew the word of God so well as to bring out the very place he'd be born, trembling, fearful that he should come. It's a contrast, beloved, that I will stress this morning, that I believe it derives directly from the text and its emphases. And so what you have in this text then 
First of all, significantly, is really three kinds of people responding to Christ. You have Gentiles responding to the announcement. And then, of course, you have Edomites. And you have, of course, the Jews. How they respond to the idea that Christ has come. And already we have something foreshadowed, don't we? We have here that Christ indeed has two flocks. He has those that, as we read in Romans 11, who are truly still. They're they're a remnant among those who are descended biologically from Abraham. A remnant among the Jews. But he also has another flock. He has those who belong to those Gentile nations that were long in darkness. They would come and call him king. But also you have foreshadowed, don't you? The rejection of the Jewish people. You have foreshadowed for you the church underage. In this moment, crying out, we have no king but Caesar. The gospel writer long prepares us, even in this text, for Christ's rejection by his own. And in, and in a strange way, as I hope we'll see in a few moments' time, you have also the idea that there will be a way of, as it were, coaxing the jealousy of the Jews in the time to come. But pulling all of these three things together, all of these aspects that are in the text, what is our principal theme? Well, the theme is very basic. It is that Christ induces hypocrites to tremble, believers to worship. Christ induces hypocrites to tremble, believers to worship. And I want us to consider that under the three headings that are derived from the constituent parts of our text. First of all, the revelation that these ones had. That's that contrast, a contrast in the kind of reverence that is offered and the reversal that takes place in these contrasts. So take, first of all, the revelation. And for that, I direct your attention back to the first six verses of Matthew 2. Note, friend, what we're dealing with. When we look at these Gentiles who are seeking Christ, how have they been notified that Christ has come? All that they have is the star. That's what we're told. They have seen his star in the east. That is the kind of revelation that God has given. And we don't know, do we? We we don't really know how they knew that that star indicated Christ. And the gospel writer really does not give us any, does not labor at all to give us an answer to that question. But this much we know. They knew as they looked at the star that Christ had come. That was their form of revelation. But then take, take that revelation that was given to the people of God, to the visible church in this age. They had the scriptures. And so when the revelation that they had, the star, here disappears and really is quite vague, they go to the ones who have the word of God. They go to the ones who have the scriptures and they assume that those who have the word of God will know more specifically than they about Christ. You have two forms of revelation then. You have those who have something quite vague, something quite murky, something extraordinary, but but something not total. And then you have those who have the word of God, and even these Gentiles know those who have the word of God have something more and something greater. You see, they could know that there was a star that indicated that Christ was born, but the scribes could tell you as it were, the very address. That's the kind of specificity that the word of God brought to them. It's the very specificity that these Gentile wise men thought. 
And friend, this teaches us at the onset, doesn't it? At this moment, that even though these men had an extraordinary way of knowing that Christ was born, it was the visible church. It was the visible church that possessed the clearest light. It was the visible church that possessed the clearest light because they possessed the scriptures. I want you to notice, beloved, as you look throughout those texts that speak about the Gentile nations, especially being called by the gospel, just note how how these nations are described. There are those possessed of blind eyes sitting in darkness in the prison house. Isaiah 47. Isaiah 9, they are people that walk in darkness. Isaiah 60, they are people of gross darkness. That's the place from which these men come. They come from nations that are steeped in darkness. Nations that are in gross darkness, the prophet tells us. And and these are people, of course, that you remember the apostle has in mind in Romans 1. They, They were people, of course, that were so dark, but not so dark as not to know something. Here's what they know according to the apostle. That which may be known, says the Apostle Paul, of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Friend, look through the annals of pagan history. See how much the likes of Heraclitus, Socrates, Plato, Pythagoras, Aristotle... See how much these men looked into the book of nature and how much they saw. And you might be surprised at how much they saw. How much true that they actually beheld. And yet, according to the word of God, in spite of all of their knowledge of the book of nature, they were in darkness. In darkness compared to the light that was deposited to the visible church. And friend, you see this, don't you? You see this because these were a people, as the Apostle describes, who were strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You had the greatest minds really ruminating on some of the highest and greatest, most sublime themes that the book of nature could give them. Any of the scriptures say this. They had no hope and they were without God in the world. Beloved, that's the place, as it were, the place from which these men come. They come from a place of darkness, whose light is but darkness, according to the word of God. And you see this practically, don't you? You see this in the book of Acts, Acts 17, when the apostle deals with these Gentiles in the apex, really, of human knowledge at the time. He goes to Athens and he sets before them the truth of the resurrection and of course preaches to them Jesus Christ crucified and risen again and they are entirely ignorant. So ignorant that when the apostle looks at them he finds of course that altar to the unknown God. Now friend, when you look at Acts 17 I think it's important to keep in mind what the apostle's really seeing. I think for some reason we have allowed the Enlightenment to color our view of the pagan past when we shouldn't. Even pagans knew that there was a God whom they did not know. Even the unbelieving world in darkness knew that there was a God who was above all of their vanities that they could not access. I mean, it's even in their own writings. Allow me to read this to you. 
One, one oracle put it this way, pagan oracle. There is one self-produced, untaught, without a mother, a name not even to be comprehended in a word, dwelling in fire, this is God, and we cannot know him. That's a pagan writing there. A, a, a pagan, by the way, who would have worshipped Jupiter or Zeus. And here's what he says. He says, I know that those ones really are nothing like the God who has created all. And I can know nothing of him. Well, that's the kind of thing from which our wise men come. There was a God in heaven whose name they could not even know. That's the darkness from which they were, from which they were drawn. But what of the light? What of the light? I want you to notice, beloved, as we sing so often in Psalm 147, we have really a description of the light that gives context for the darkness we're thinking of. We're told there, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. The darkness of the Gentiles juxtaposed to the light that was deposited in the visible church in the church under age is staggering, isn't it? To this church, God has given knowledge that none other, no other nation really possessed. There was no altar. There ought not to be an altar in Israel to an unknown God, especially to a God who says, surely the Lord will do nothing, but He revealeth His secrets unto His prophets. That's how close these men, these women were as they were in the visible church to the Lord. Again, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And Matthew Paul very helpfully reminds us, this is not speaking here primarily the privilege of the prophets. It's speaking about the privilege of those in the visible church who would hear them. Matthew Paul writes thus, He foretelleth by his prophets to his people that they may by repentance prevent the evil threatened and by constancy and obedience attain to the good promise. Friend, note the contrast, please. Here you have a nation that walks so closely with the Lord whom, to whom the Lord has given such great knowledge that as it were, surely the Lord will do nothing but he, it, he reveals it to them. Compare that with the nations that are in darkness that we've just described. The inestimable privilege of the word of God. The inestimable privilege that was given to the church underage to have such proximity to the Lord, such great knowledge of the works of our God. Unto thee it was showed, says Moses, that thou mightest know the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside them. The Lord would say to the church at this time, Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? He says this to the church and not to the world. That's the privilege that we have in our text. That's the privilege the chief priests and the scribes had when the wise men came to them. And they knew this. There was something that they knew here. That if they were looking for light, they needed to go to those who had the word of God. And beloved, just by way of application, and this is a slight bypass, 
I think it's important for me to remind you that it's still the case that the word of God is still primarily lodged with the visible church. Um, even, if, even if the unbelieving world has access to the words, certainly they don't have access by terms of right to those who the Lord gives to the church as her ministers. And also the power ordinarily in the word of God is to be expected only in the visible church. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, what do we make of that? The apostle writes just before, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? The idea is, is that still in the visible church today, the power of God's word, that which really gives light to souls, is still ordinarily only to be found in the visible church. Still. And that prepares us then for a text like Isaiah 65. It shows us that even though we're reading about the first century, we're not too far removed from our own. Here's what the Lord says. I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Israel in this text was given such great privilege. She had such intimate knowledge of the oracles of God such that God would do nothing as it were as he writes in Amos but would reveal it to the prophets and through the prophets to them. And yet what do we find in this text? Notwithstanding this great gift, notwithstanding this high privilege, these Gentile, these Gentile men put them to shame. These Gentile men had more an interest in Christ than those who had so much knowledge about him, who had the means of grace always, as it were, in front of them. These ones who had little light shamed those who had great light. And beloved, if we're to apply this to ourselves, first of all, you see here that these, these men cherished what little means they had because they knew that it would drive them to Christ. What do we think of those great means that we have now? Do we cherish them as these wise men cherished that star? Do we cherish them more as the great privilege that they are to have the word of God as we do? Beloved, if we don't cherish these things that drive us to Christ, make no mistake, we have more in common with the chief priests and the scribes than we do with these wise men. That brings us to a second point. As you notice in the second verse and also in verses 7 and 8, you have the idea of worship or reverence. And what's striking, of course, is you have this comparison. You have that worship and that reverence that these wise men would render to the Lord. And then you have that which Herod himself says he would render as soon as he was notified where Christ had been born. And we know, as I've already said, that one was true. One desire was genuine. The other, of course, was dissembling. It was false. But what do we make of this? Well, friend, I think the contrast here is crucial because as we look at these kinds of men that are in view in Matthew 2, 
we notice that we have great men. Now, now some, of course, would say that these wise men were kings. Um, and, and really, they, they may have been, but there's not a scintilla of evidence in the text that they were. Um, really, all that we know is that these men were men who, as we're told here, were wise men. Wise men, they perhaps, perhaps tied even with the dark arts, perhaps even involved in things of witchcraft at one stage. Um, that would be the word, the way the word would be used elsewhere, both in sacred and in, in extra biblical literature. But the idea that we can't miss, though, is that the contrast lies not because these men are peers politically, Herod and the wise men, but that these men, Herod and the wise men, are both of high social status. These are both, as far as society is concerned, magistrates or not, they are considered great men. They would be. And we know this. We know this again through scripture and through extra biblical literature as well. But note how very differently they think about worship. How very differently they carry themselves about reverence to Christ. You see here Herod playing the hypocrite, don't you? You see a man, a great man, who will not deign to stoop to Christ, but would kill him instead. You see here a man who would profess much, but really be of the same heart of all the kings and all of the people of Psalm 2. And then you have great men, such as the wise men, who would worship Christ aright and from the heart. Hypocrites and believers offer worship very, very differently. The hypocrite, the hypocrite worships like Herod. They seek me daily, says the Lord, and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. All of that sounds very good, doesn't it? This is a nation that really seems to want to worship God. But the prophet in that very text tells us that they don't do it at all. So allow me then to go back and read to you just what it says again. Isaiah 58. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They have some, they have some pleasure in worshiping God. They derive some delight in seeking the Lord. And God says they are hypocrites. They're dissembling people. They're the people described in Psalm 78. They did flatter the Lord with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Beloved, what this reminds us is, and this is so crucial, this is so crucial. When folks come to the worship of God, it is not enough that they are present. It is not enough that they're present. Even a hypocrite can come. And, and this is so striking about the word of God, isn't it? Even a hypocrite can come to worship and take some delight in it and be a hypocrite nonetheless. Beloved, this is a crucial aspect that I think we have lost. This is why we can say, I think in the West, with, with lamentation, that really the greatest day of idolatry and hypocrisy is on the Lord's Day. When folks think that it's just enough to approach the Lord with their lips and not with their hearts. In a sense, friend, Herod could do as much. 
even though he had a murderous heart toward Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees would do so much, even though they would cry, crucify him, crucify him. Beloved, we must be mindful that it's not merely enough to go through the motions, of course. There must be a difference. And when you look at the believers as they worship God, it's so much more like what you have in our text with the wise men. The cry is, not unto us, O Lord, and not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. You really, you really want to get to the heart of genuine worship of the Lord. Well, let me give you an analogy that's based on that text that I've just read from our own text. Herod, when he thinks about Christ, when he thinks about approaching Christ, all that he's concerned about is maintaining his status that came to him through Rome. He would come on a self-serving errand. He would come primarily for self. But even though these great men from the East are great men, even though they were men of renown among their own people, all that you find in this text is a great desire just to be at Christ. Just to be at His side. Herod minds his kingship and feels threatened. That's his focus. But very evidently in the text, the focus of the wise men is very different. And by analogy, beloved, that brings us to really the heart of what true worship is. The cry of the one who worships God aright is pleading that God would give them the grace to check self at the door. To plead that they would die to self and that God alone would be exalted. That they would put aside all of their worldly accoutrements, all, all of their glory as far as men is concerned, and from the heart give glory only unto God. Beloved, at its very core, that we could say so, so much more than that. That is the crucial difference between hypocritical and genuine worship. One is dissembling at its heart. One has the same disposition of Herod, even if it doesn't manifest itself as Herod's does. The other one looks only to a triune God whom they would exalt through the Lord Jesus Christ. But beloved, as far as application goes at this point, we do need to ask, is there a way that we can apply this text? And the answer, of course, is yes. And it comes by way of a question. How and for whom do you come on a morning such as this? How and for whom do you come on a morning such as this? So well, I'm not so sure we can make that application. Right? It seems a bit remote, doesn't it, from the text? Here we're talking about men who are literally geographically moving toward the place where the incarnate Christ could be found. We're not doing that on the Lord's Day. We're not doing that this morning. Beloved, I don't think it's an exaggeration to make, to make such an application especially when you consider Isaiah 6, sorry, Psalm 65. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee. In what way is he caused to approach? That he may dwell in thy courts, in the ordinances which God has established. You see what the Lord is saying there. When you come and make use of the ordinances of God, God says, regardless of what we may think, regardless of what the world may say, God says he regards that as approaching unto himself in a special and a unique way. And so, friend, this text has a lot of application 
for a morning such as this? Which disposition do we have? Are we coming as a dissembling people? Approaching with our lips but not our hearts? Or are we coming as those who cherish the means that drive us to Christ? Beloved, it's a fair application. It's a fair application and it's one that certainly should be taken to our hearts Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But thirdly and finally, when we look at this text, I've said to you already that there is a paradox here, isn't there? In verses 9 and 10, you have, again, these wise men, these men who came from nations that were prescribed, as the Lord says, to be in darkness until the times of the gospel. People who did not really know their right from their left hand were, were with, without, without God in the world. They come. And they rejoice, as the text tells us, exceedingly over those means that would take them to Christ. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem trembles. They know so much about Christ. They, as I said before, can tell you the very place that he should be born. But it's not they who are rejoicing. Not they who have been so privileged, not they who have had so many means given to them for their eternal well-being. No, it's, it's really only these wise men in the text who are exceedingly joyful that the Lord has given them a means to behold the Lord's Christ. You see, friend, in this text, which we will see so many times throughout the gospel, The gospel writers will emphasize that great sinners come before great hypocrites. Great sinners come to Christ before great hypocrites. You see how Christ himself puts this in Matthew 8. Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see that in our text this morning, don't you? These Gentiles who were once immured in sin, these ones go to Christ before the children of the kingdom go. And beloved, we see that so many times in front of us, don't we? Those who have the most knowledge of the gospel and are without Christ are often the most hostile to it, are most hardened to it, most insensible under it while those who are engaged in years, decades of sin, are the ones who, when they encounter Christ, are most melted and most filled with grace and most demonstrate Christ-likeness. Beloved, we see that today. We see that in our own text. And so, friend, what you have here, you have here in this passage is the heart of one who is seeking Christ in earnest. It's striking how the gospel writer presents this to us. He doesn't just say that they were on an expedition, but their affections are engaged at every point. These wise men are not aloof, and they're not merely a curious people. They are a people whose hearts are really tied to the labor. And friend, for an illustration, these men then are those that we should expect well, men, these are, these, are, these are men that we should expect to find in places of worship Lord's Day after Lord's Day. 
a disposition from the heart that is, as it were, stalking Christ. Asking, as we do in the Song of Solomon, where is he that I may find him? That's the kind of desire that you and I must have every time we gather. Well, but it's the idea of Psalm 63, isn't it? My soul follows hard after thee. Wherever, whatever means I might find that would draw me to him, I should be exceedingly glad to find those means that would drive me to Christ. Beloved, that's the disposition that certainly the text commends to us this morning. So allow me to close with just a few words of application. When you look at this text, friend, as I said before already, corporate worship is in many ways a litmus test. Something by which we can test Which are we like? Are we like those who are dissembling, like Herod, like the scribes and the the chief priests who had so much knowledge but had no heart? Or are we like, like these men who cherished even the least means that would show them Christ? When we come on a morning such as this, the question is not, do you come? But how do you come? And why do you come? Why do you come? And the second question, of course, is what is your use of the means? The means that would set Christ before you. Beloved, a text like this certainly shames us, doesn't it? That these ones could rejoice exceedingly over a very little light that was given them. When you and I in the new covenant with a closed canon have such great light given to us even greater light than the church, the visible church underage, possessed. What do we use? How do we use these means? Uh, Do we use them with that kind of exceeding joy that we read of in our text? And beloved, as you look at this text too, it's a striking thing, isn't it? That the God who dispenses sovereign grace at his own pleasure gives such great grace to wise men, men who are mirrored in their own sin, darkness without God in the world. He gives grace to such men to draw them to Christ. This should preach to us too the freeness of God's grace. He is so lavish and his arm is so so long yet, still not shortened, that even those great sinners, perhaps even the greatest that we can imagine, are still in this life within the reach of the Lord. And so the exhortation, beloved, is, of course, to make use of the means in a way very differently than what we have in the church underage in our text. To use these means in earnest and with delight, and to use these means to access the Christ whom they convey. Beloved, it's not enough simply to enjoy some kind of religiosity Many in hell, most, perhaps all in hell, enjoy some kind of religious reflection, but not, not from a heart that loves God. Beloved, our use of the means must always be to access our triune God through Jesus Christ and through the means which he's instituted. And so, beloved, each time we gather The cry, the heart cry on the worshiper should be this. Draw me to Christ.
It was the great cry, the great cry of these wise men. Where is he that is born king of the Jews, that we may worship him? Beloved, that cry should be on our lips day after day. May it be so by the Lord's grace. Amen.